So hello and welcome back um, to this podcast. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about curriculum specifically for ESL instruction. Um, We're going to start by talking a little bit about the definition of curriculum, how a curriculum is organized, and what a curriculum should look like in this new age of remote learning and teaching and technology. So the first thing we need to address, right, or the first question we need to answer is what exactly is a curriculum, right? Again, in 1995, defines a curriculum as everything that happens in relation to the educational program. And so that means that everything that goes from the learning objective all the way to lesson planning, the actual instruction, the the assessments, all that, even the reflective teaching practices, or falls under a curriculum. I really do want to emphasize that there are there's learning happening everywhere, right? And and you can have formal learning, which is one that the instructor or the teacher has a specific learning objective in mind, and they will model, they will develop a, a process in the classroom where the student will actively and objectively or try to meet that learning objective. And then there's there's this other scenario called informal learning. But there's another word for this, right? You can call it conscious learning for formal learning and unconscious learning, or learning and acquisition. For example, you can have accidental learning, or I should say incidental learning, happening on the playground where students are communicating and there's this intersection of ideas, of languages, of ideologies, of of linguistic repertoires, right? Or you can also have learning opportunities. You can develop learning in the classroom. And so those become more, more conscious, right? So you can have accidental learning at home, which is equally as valuable, um, but but those are kind of like, let's say, off the job, right, or out of school. So they are incidentally learning at home, which is equally as valuable as learning anything in the classroom, right? And then on the job, right, you have this conscious structured learning experience in terms of courses, labs, workshops, even um, individual one-on-one lessons, right? With this conscious in the classroom learning that's happening and teaching, you need to be very mindful of the curriculum planning cycle. The reason why it's a cycle, it's because it's constantly happening. You design a lesson to meet a standard and expectation or, or a learning objective, then you implement it and then you're gonna get an output, which is the student-produced assessment. Then you reevaluate, then you redesign, or you move on to the next learning objective. And so this uh, curricular cycle, Peyton and Peyton in 1998 did a beautiful job really going in depth with the explanation of this. So I'm gonna go ahead and include that in my references for this episode. So if you're interested in delving a little bit deeper into the different steps of a curricular cycle, you can definitely check their paper out. And now I want to talk a little bit about the outcome-based curricula, which is the one that I think is most salient or prevalent in the different and the different departments of education throughout the U.S. Uh, so the outcome-based curricula focuses or starts with the aims or desired outcomes for the student population. So after the lesson, they'll be able to do X, Y, and Z. 
And then it also focuses on the types of content that you will be using to achieve that outcome. Then it goes into the teaching and learning practices that happen in the classroom. And that's where you're going to be talking about them a little bit step by step. Then you're going to go into formative assessments that you're going to be conducting along the different steps of the lesson until finally you'll have a summative evaluation at the end of the unit. This is the part of the podcast where I want to make a very clear and poignant disclaimer. Education is impacted by social forces. That includes curriculum development. The curriculum development is influenced and biased by political, economic, and cultural forces. And don't take my word for it. You can go ahead to page 26 in Wiles and Bondi's paper published in 2002, and they go more in depth to explain how each and every single one of the forces that I just mentioned actually impact or sway the curriculum development process. And for better or for worse, you could make the argument that this is going to make the curriculum lead one way politically or the other. Um, but also we need to understand that schools are reflections or models for society. So obviously all these different societal forces are going to impact the development of the curriculum for the citizens of the future. That's why it's so important that we actually know who our school board members are, who the superintendent of our departments of education, whether that's local, whether that's at the state level, whether that's even at the federal level. We need to know who the people in power are of our education system so that we can hold them accountable. It's also important to note that the values of society are ever-changing, right? DeNoble and Hogan in 2014 talk about how there are values that are intrinsic to the classroom level that involve the curriculum and pedagogy at the school level, right? And there goes the organizational culture, the teaching philosophy, the vision, the mission, and the purpose of the schooling. And then there are other uh, values at the community level that talk about these interaction between schools and the community and also the activities where the community is a part of the school and vice versa, school as a part of the community. And I can talk a little bit more in depth about this. Um, I published in 2018 a paper where I explore teachers' perceptions of Puerto Rican student resilience or students in Puerto Rico's resilience after Hurricane Maria. And in that paper, what I noticed that was a recurring theme among my teacher participants was that school was no longer disconnected from the community right? It wasn't just the teacher and the students in their classroom. Teachers became the, the first responders for their students. And um, Carol Much talks about this after the 2010 earthquakes in New Zealand. So, so this is recurring theme in the literature and in research, where the teacher and the students and the school becomes essential to community recovering in the aftermath of natural disasters. And so I think that's why the way knowledge is being treated 
in curricula has been re-envisioned. I mean, in the early 2000s, on page 31, Wiles and Bondi talk about this new curricula, right? And they say, and I quote, the new curricula are based on the fact that knowledge has an internal connectedness, a meaningfulness, and that for facts to be appreciated and understood and remembered, they must be fitted into an internal meaningful context. So now it's not learning for the sake of learning, but learning because this matters to me and to the society I live in. And so for the past 20 something years, the way knowledge has been treated has been twofold. First, in terms of effect or affect, the attitude, the feeling, the emotion that knowledge uh, evokes from the learners. And then in terms of cognition, the retention, the storage and retrieval, the interpretation and the processing of that knowledge. And so ultimately, all this comes down to one pivotal question. How does all of this knowledge and the way we learn and process that knowledge impact human growth and development? And so I think that now it's appropriate to really stop for a second and talk about human growth and development, right? You have physiological growth where, where you intellectually and social culturally develop and mature within your human condition, right? So human growth and development, the only thing it is, it's us learning how to be human and how to behave within the social construct that is society. So knowing this, right, well, all this, this concept of human growth and development, then as educators and curriculum designers, we need to stop for a minute and think about how do we take into consideration human growth and development when we're creating units specifically for ESL students within a K-12 setting. Because one of my main concerns, right, as a curricular specialist is that we think an 11th grader, even though they have a reading level similar to a third grader, they're still cognitively 17, right? They're not in third grade. They might read at that level, but they're not intellectually, socially, emotionally at that level. So then how do we take into consideration or how do we negotiate where they are physiologically with their language proficiency? And how do we make meaningful curricula for specific learning contexts of our ESL students? And I think the, the starting point, right, of, of that answer, so the answer to that question, right, is thinking about learning as a process, right? The learning theory and the instructional approach selected by the curriculum planners are a function of the desired goals of student growth. And so with that in mind, we know that there's a behavioral component to the learning process, right? There's an internal response to external stimuli where, where our students identify, alter, and evaluate 
information that's being presented to them. We also understand that in that process, there needs to be a clear structure. Why? Because this motivates our students. It shows them the needs and the drives that they should be pursuing. It also allows them to be ready and to identify clearly what's expected from them. And we also need to take into consideration that this process also has environmental, social implications, right? And we have perceptions that students come in with, right? That may include biases, beliefs. Uh, we also need to understand that there's a uniqueness, a creativity within each and every single one of our students. And that fosters diversity within our classroom. So now I want to take a couple minutes to talk about Uh, four examples of types of curriculum. The academic curriculum, as defined by Tedesco, Operti, and Amadio in 2014, is one curriculum where the topics are explained. The goal of this curriculum is to refine intellectual abilities, acquire a product of humanity, and to transmit content. It's not there to implement or to enforce any ideologies, right? This is a very specific curriculum that's most popularly implemented in specialized schools. Then there's a technological curriculum where the terms and the content is defined. It has a very specific learning objective and the learning objectives are of specific subjects. And educational technology is thought to improve learning. And why is this type of curricula separated from the academic? Because if you kind of think about it, they seem almost identical, except the fact that obviously there's a significant component in technology, right? Here, the subjects are clearly separated for the purposes of incorporating technology specific to each subject. Whereas in academic curricula, technology isn't placed with such importance, right? Like they're not going to divide subjects for the purpose of including technology, right? So then the third type of curricula that I want to talk about is the humanistic curricula. And this one is where the terms and the content are explored. And it's based on students' specific needs. Students' interests are extremely important. And it's a very design-rich learning environment. Why? Because of the diversity within the student population That means that there needs to be a lot more design and thought going into differentiated instruction. And so that means that on the one hand, you have the academic curriculum that focuses on refining intellectual abilities of the students as a whole, right? Where It's a student body, not individual students. While a humanistic then has, has kind of like the opposite perspective of where it's based on individual student needs. And then there is a social reconstructionist curricula, right? And this one is highly 
informed, based, supportive, relies a lot on the principal tenets of critical pedagogy, right? Because here, the content question the status quo. The premise of this type of curriculum is that there is something inherently wrong with society and that it is the future citizens, current students, responsibility to fix it. And so it's a critical analysis of societal problems. And there is a huge focus on societal problems. And it's done with the key understanding that it is the student's responsibility to take action to create a new society. And I know that the current political climate regarding critical race theory and banning books and revisioning and redesigning curricula is a very hot button issue. And that's while related to the topic of this podcast is not one that I'm going to delve into. That's certainly one that we can explore in another episode. But the purpose of this episode is to showcase different types of curricula and what a curricula is, right? So this isn't more argumentative or persuasive, but rather informative. So with that in mind, I want to talk about several key questions that curriculum development specialists need to always keep in mind when designing curricula. The first thing is what sort of student are we designing this curriculum for? How will we reflect the demands of accreditation agencies, right? Because it's one thing what we want, it's one thing who our students are, and it's another thing what we are trying to get an accreditation for, right? And then after we take into consideration those three questions, then we need to think about what outcomes and context should be included to meet the demands of our students and accreditation agencies. In addition to that, what teaching and learning methods would be key and essential to include in this type of, of curriculum? Finally, we need to think about how will learners be assessed and how are we going to establish links not only to learner assessment, but also curricular assessment? And as always, we need to remember that learning outcomes should always be written in future tense, identify important learning requirements, use language which students can understand, be achievable, and most importantly, be accessible. So yeah, that's all for this episode. As always, the references are going to be included in the description of this podcast. Stay safe, and I'll see you next episode.